The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. ECB officials play down the prospect of easing monetary policy at the central bank's annual forum in Sintra. ECB chief economist Philip Lane tells CNBC the bank will remain data dependent in its decision making. The strength of monetary transmission is highly uncertain and in terms of the future of interest rates it's going to be a mix of all of those. There's no shorthand, there's no shortcut, there's no rule of thumb. Uh, we have to look at all of that in, in a, a joint manner. Later today, don't miss CNBC's headline panel, where we'll hear from the world's top four central bankers. A tale of two recoveries, US housing and consumer stats show resilience, but the Chinese data just keeps getting worse, with industrial profits declining by double digits. The Dow breaks a six-day losing streak on pace for its best month since November, while a resurgence in tech stocks pushes the Nasdaq towards its best first half since 1983. UBS reportedly considering slashing its Credit Suisse workforce in half. That would start in July, with two more rounds slated for the autumn. Good morning, everyone. Now we're at Billy in the hot seat this morning. Good morning. Thank <laughs> Good you for joining morning, us. Good morning, Karen. Yeah, of course. I mean, so much really still going on across the world, especially with Centra happening right now. Uh, we definitely have a lot to cover. It feels like we are very much focusing again on monetary policy. Yeah. Briefly stepping away as we t took a look at the geopolitics over the weekend around that mutiny in Russia. But here we are back to uh, main bread and butter looking at rates again. As the ECB chief economist, Philip Lane, has told CNBC, he cannot predict whether the central bank will hike interest rates again beyond its July meeting. Lane spoke to Aneta at the ECB's annual forum on central banking in Portugal and said there are still too many data points between now and September, but did say that the central bank is working to keep restrictive levels for a sufficiently long time to tame inflation. Let's get out to Aneta for more at Sintra. Aneta, again, another higher for longer story coming through from the central banks. Yes, exactly. I think, I mean, Philip Lane, the chief economist, cannot pre-commit to the September meeting. That's why he couldn't say, yes, of course, we're going to hike again. But if you read through the lines, that's what you as well hear here on the ground, because clearly inflation is far too high and they keep on hiking until they have the feeling that they're getting inflation under control. A problem is also that they're not trusting anymore in their forecasting models, at least not, at least not to 100%, because they have been proven so wrong in the past so that you can't really say we're hiking rates now to a certain level and then inflation will by natu naturally go back to its target. So I guess they rather will err on the side of overhiking. That's at least my understanding here on the ground. And that is also not reflected currently in the markets. But perhaps we're listening of what Philip Lane had to say about the inflation trajectory. What we say in, in, in terms of the forecasts and President Lagarde came back to this morning is there's a long way to go. So going from where we are now all the way to our target uh, in our forecast will take a couple of years. And so this is really, if you like, a, a phase where the original shock uh, in terms of energy, in terms of pandemic, 
in many ways they're behind us in terms of the original shock but now we are in this if you like uh, adjustment phase and that adjustment phase where wages uh, need to catch up where there's ongoing uh, price adjustment across the economy will be a gradual process and critically uh, in order to make sure uh, it doesn't take too long and in order to make sure it doesn't become embedded indefinitely this is why uh, we say we need to move monetary policy to sufficiently restrictive levels for sufficiently long. I've been speaking to many central bankers here on the ground in Sintra and the general message is actually quite clear that the cost of overhiking are not as high as the cost of not doing enough because clearly if you don't do enough as a central bank you'll be confronted with a much bigger problem at some point in time in the future and that is why he, people here are really concerned about these second round effects that what he was referring to as the second phase of the inflationary environment is that that is where we're in right now energy prices are coming back commodity prices are coming back but what we're seeing now is second round effects through wage effects for example but also service price inflation is driving prices higher and that is possibly also the case during the summer period so I guess the trajectory of monetary policy if not being very clear but it's quite clear that they're going to hike at least once or twice again after the summer break perhaps we listen of what Philip Lane said about monetary policy implications of that higher than uh, wanted inflation rate what you need to allocate is essentially how the market prices risk. So in terms of their true expectation of what we might do uh, versus some uh, risk factors. But let me differentiate between the longer end of the yield curve uh, and in, in many ways having uh, lower yields five years out, ten years out it is, is a sign of confidence that inflation is temporary. Uh, we will get back to 2% in a couple of years. And once we're back at 2% or on our way to 2%, then easing uh, will happen. So that is, uh, I think, uncontested. Where I do think the market uh, should ask itself questions is about the timing or the speed of, of uh, reversal of the restrictive policy. Because essentially what, what I'm saying to you, and this is the general message here, is essentially we will not be back towards 2% for a couple of years. We will make good progress even this year, especially at the later part of the year. But it's not going to collapse to 2% within a few months. And so we, we will have a, a sustained period where rates need to remain restrictive to make sure we don't have any uh, uh, new shock that takes us away from 2%. Uh, and that's, I think, the durability of, of restrictiveness is very important. So anyone who thinks we're, we're pricing on the latest uh, inflation number as opposed to looking at the whole uh, horizon of monetary policy over the next couple of years. And when I look at the horizon for the next couple of years, I don't see uh, rapid rate cuts uh, you know, priced in, or I don't think it's appropriate to have rapid rate cuts uh, priced in in expectation. So maybe there's some uh, risk story they can tell you. Would you say that we also need, um, looking at the asymmetric inflation target, an undershooting of inflation? Well, I mean, I think we, in our strategy review, we were clear that we have a symmetric target. Uh, we're clear, we're guided, which I think is very helpful, by the way, in, in today's conditions, to be clear that, that we, we will uh, 
go for our 2% target. It's also clear, uh, as you know, uh, we take a medium-term view. It's not the case we need 2% every month, but we need to make sure the system is essentially, whatever may move it away from 2, we go back to 2% quite quickly. So what is still astonishing is how optimistic the ECB is about the economic outlook, given that we've just seen the fall in PMIs, also the EFO index coming in much lower than expected. But they're still keeping that forecast uh, in place that whatever we might see a mild recession, but not a severe drop in economic activity. Uh, some economists do argue that's far too optimistic. It remains to be seen what these higher rates really mean for the real economy, especially because there's such a big time lag between hiking rates and having a real effect on the economy because some transmission channels are not working as well as in some jurisdictions. For example, the banking transmission channel is only working very well in banking markets where there's a lot of competition, such as Germany and possibly also in France, but other markets don't have that very efficient banking channel transmission. Annette, I just wanted to bring up another point because who makes the decision and who interprets the data is quite key. And you've spent a lot of time talking to the, the who here, the people on the uh, decision-making board. And effectively, there seem to be a ton of hawks outweighing the doves. And the hawks have said all along they're concerned about the upside risk to inflation still rather than the downside erring on the side of the caution this time around actually means taking the decision on rates to ensure you're not getting stuck with inflation down the track. So how do you look at the balance of those hawks these days and what exactly they're saying? Yes, it's a, I think it's a fair interpretation, Karen, that the hawks or the camp of the hawks is the majority right now in the governing council. There are, of course, some doves who are concerned about what hiking rates even further might mean for financial stability, but they're not, they're not very vocal. Um, and it's not quite clear how influential they are. They got something, like if you want to talk about like political horse trading also inside the ECB, they got that transmission uh, mechanism instrument in place, which would, could be deployed in case we're seeing spikes in yields in the periphery and that has actually calmed then calmed then down well when and what could trigger the deployment of so these means inside that program is not very clear but at least it should give them some confidence that they're not left on their own in case we are seeing a diverging um, or a fragmentation of yields in your area but for now, it seems the camp of the Hawks being more vocal and being the majority inside the, uh, the governing council of the ECB, yes. Annetta, thank you very much for bringing us the coverage today from Sintra. Later on today, our US colleague Sarah Eisen will be moderating a panel on central bank policy. And what a lineup! Uh, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell, ECB President Christine Lagarde, BOJ Governor Kazuo Ueda and the BOE Governor Andrew Bailey all on that panel with Sarah Eisen. Don't miss the conversation starting at 15.30 CET here on CNBC. So. Fair to say you'll learn something about monetary policy at the end of this particular one. <laughs> well, coming up on the show, Putin seeks to regain authority after a mini-mutiny while giving more detail on Wagner's finances.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Now, Wagner chief Yegevni Prigozhin is starting his new life in exile in Belarus. Now, President Lukashenko confirmed the man who ended a brief mutiny against Russian President Vladimir Putin had arrived in the country. Meanwhile, the Russian leader attempted to reassert his authority and addressed his troops, commending them for stopping a potential civil war. Putin admitted for the first time that the Wagner military group had been fully funded by the Russian state in Ukraine, with billions of dollars in allowance, incentive and insurance payments. Now, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the alliance is still assessing this situation and will react accordingly. We are, of course, closely uh, uh, monitoring the developments. And uh, we have already increased our readiness, our uh, preparedness, and uh, uh, our military presence in the eastern part of the alliance. We will make further decisions to further strengthen our collective defense uh, with uh, more high readiness forces and uh, uh, with more uh, capabilities to ensure uh, uh, credible deterrence and defense uh, for the whole alliance. We'll make those decisions at the uh, uh, upcoming NATO summit uh, in just uh, a few uh, days. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko says there's no reason for fear of Wagner's presence within the country's borders and that Belarus's standoff will benefit, or rather stands to benefit. Putin told me the last time, counter-battery combat, it's impossible without it, drones. They have gone through that. They will talk about weapons, what worked well, what didn't. We will be meeting with them and will insist to meet with our commanders at the Polygon to discuss tactics, armament, how to advance, how to defend. It's invaluable. That's what we need to learn from the Wagner Group. Hungary's foreign minister has criticised Europe's, quote, ideological atmosphere on the war in Ukraine, telling CNBC the political climate is making it difficult to find a common-sense solution on energy. Let's get out to Sam for more from Tianjin. Sam, a lot of international visitors there and discussing energy security, it seems. The Hungarians have taken money from the Europeans when it comes to trying to shore up that energy security through other sources. But it sounds like there's still tension at this point as everybody looks ahead and says, what's coming next winter and just how secure are we at this point? Good morning to you, Karen. Absolutely. I had a fascinating chat with Peter Siato, the foreign minister of Hungary yesterday, where we did talk about uh, that situation, certainly uh, in light of some of the views around Hungary being a so-called outlier when it does come to this situation, sort of having a foot in both camps when it comes to trying to balance that relationship, uh, not just between Europe and China, of course, where we are here now in Tianjin, where, where that is largely dominating the conversations, but also, as you mentioned, with, of course, Russia and around those energy supports. Supplies. Now, I did ask him about the recent developments over the weekend, which certainly have been dominating a lot of the headlines as this event got underway here on Monday. And he did say, of course, they are very carefully watching that situation, as one would be. He said he was in touch uh, with his counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, who assures him that the situation is under control. And so this was a part of our conversation yesterday. Have a listen. 
peace is very important because we are in the neighborhood of the war. The war has really, really serious impacts on Hungary when it comes to the energy prices, inflation, food prices, uh, not to speak about the Hungarians who are dying in the war representing the Hungarian community in Ukraine. So we are super interested in peace and whatever brings closer to peace, we support it. Whatever brings closer to a threat of escalation, we do not support. I want to pick up on that because, of course, you've recently said that Hungary cannot be compared to some of your neighbors when it comes to weaning themselves off that energy. I mean, how you're talking about keeping a foot in both camps, are you managing to balance that relationship between Moscow and also European countries? Uh, look, uh, when it comes to energy, we have never um, considered energy as if it was of political or ideological nature, because gas doesn't have an ideology. Uh, it has physics. So you need a physical infrastructure. You need source and you need pipeline. And if you look at the um, energy infrastructure map of Central Europe, it is obvious for everybody that we cannot get rid of the Russian sources because if we do so, we cannot supply the country. And then who will explain to the Hungarian people why uh, gas um, uh, um, access is being restricted? So, so therefore, we have a fair and based on experience, um, satisfactory cooperation with Russia, reliable cooperation with Russia when it comes to the energy deliveries, be it oil, gas or nuclear uh, fuel, and we just simply don't want to give it up. Of course, we are working on diversification, but for us, diversification does not mean that, you know, changing one source for the other or replacing one source with the other. But diversification for us is about the more possible sources and the more possible routes uh, to be uh, taken uh, into consideration. So we are negotiating with the Qataris, with the Azeris and with other deliverers, but uh, these deliveries cannot take over the Russian. They can be supplementary or uh, additional um, uh, deliveries, in enhancing our energy security, obviously, but getting rid of the Russian sources for us, it's uh, impossible. And we keep on explaining it to our European colleagues, but unfortunately currently the, the political atmosphere in Europe is very ideological, is very emotional, it's very hard to, uh, to uh, cool down the tensions and to carry out a discussion based on common sense, let's put it this way. And it's striking in a way that they are talking about political and ideological natures in the context of economics, because in a way, this is almost echoing the sort of language we hear from Beijing. We heard Li Chang speaking yesterday also about ideologies. We had a fascinating chat to switching gears also regarding China and the relationship there, particularly against the backdrop of a lot of these views that really Hungary, as I mentioned, is taking a very different approach to its European neighbours, particularly around this whole idea of de-risking. I did put that to Mr. Siato and he did say that the whole idea of decoupling and de-risking would be suicide for Europe. It would kill the European economy. And I did put that to him in terms of the investment that China is making in his country, $7.6 billion when it comes to a battery plant by Contemporary Amperex. This is a significant investment deal that is the biggest outside of China for this battery maker. And he said, look, while the Germans are talking about de-risking, they're ringing him up 
and convincing him to try to get China to come and invest in Hungary to service those European car manufacturers. So that was a really interesting take. He did say that they are working with two more top 10 Chinese uh, car makers or at least battery makers right now. Um, They are going to be announcing some of those investments uh, soon. That would double FDI in Hungary from China from last year, which was already at a record. And he's also talking about supply chains uh, from factories being Um, attracted to Russia that obviously has spin-off effects in terms of the suppliers. Um, And so uh, Huayo Cobalt is the latest to make a 1.3 billion euro investment there uh, as well to make the cathode that uh, will supply contemporary Amperex. So a fascinating chat with Mr. Seattle yesterday. Guys, back to you in London. Sam, thank you very much for that uh, coming right through is that uh, resilient supply chain is key here, whether that involves the Chinese or not. In some countries, it will be an involvement, but for the likes of Germany, which has had that huge reliance on China, uh, for them, it's uh, to take down the situation and ensure there's slightly less reliance on the Chinese. Yeah, they, I mean, they definitely want to try and de-escalate, if you want to call it that, as much as possible. But even just saying that they can't do away entirely with Russia, I guess that tells you some sort of uh, a sense of where they kind of lie when it comes to to this entire uh, discussion and, and, and operation too. Yeah. In the meantime, pressure on the mainland market. Industrial profits sank 18.8% year on year in the first five months of 2023, on top of a more than 20% contraction in January to April. Earnings shrank more than 12% in May alone on an annual basis. This comes amid soft demand in China and overseas, along with a weaker than expected post-COVID recovery, leading many investors to expect more support measures from Beijing. Data out of the States. Now, U.S. home prices fell for the first time in 11 years in April, down 0.2 percent on an annual basis. That's according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index. But on a monthly basis, they rose for the third straight month, while new home sales surged towards a one and a half year high. U.S. housing inventory remains low, keeping prices strong despite rising interest rates. The U.S. economy continues to show resilience elsewhere despite recession fears, with American consumer confidence hitting a 17-month high in June of 109.7. Business spending also appeared to hold up in May, as durable goods orders surged 1.7% against expectations for a 1% dip. Non-defence orders, ex-aircraft, considered a key indicator, rose 0.7% last month, which was well ahead of expectations. Now, Rabile, that data I thought was fascinating yesterday. The market took it as good news, a sign that perhaps we can skirt around recession. But if you're looking for heat to come out of the economy, these were not exactly the data points you'd expect to see. Yeah, it certainly isn't. And at a time when perhaps there were thoughts that maybe this could be an extended pause in those interest rate hikes, well, now it's looking like more hikes could certainly be on the way, right? And that is kind of the sense that has been pushed into the market. So we saw the U.S. market really go a lot higher yesterday. The Dow Jones breaking what was a six-day losing streak. So that's up two-thirds of a percent then in that trading picture. As we look ahead, of course, uh, to that, uh, that panel discussion then that will involve uh, Jay Powell as well then later today. Uh, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both uh, kind of also beating three-day losing streaks there. So their first gains in uh, three sessions on that front. So a positive session across the board. Tech stocks leading that. 
yet uptick more than two percent higher only healthcare managing to go down there around a tenth of a percent weaker in fact when one takes a look at the treasuries that economic data also playing uh, into the fixture and how things kind of fared for the most part uh, with the five years you can tell they're now just above that four percent mark still uh, 4.0296 percent uh, kind of looking at that really seeing uh, that it has however mirrored uh, a sense of how the European market is also pretty much fed as well that US data playing in part onto some of the commodities uh, this has kind of shown uh, a, a an interesting sense of where exactly we seem to have that disparity as well. The IEA coming out with its prediction around two weeks ago with regards to where they see uh, oil production as well as demand coming through into the market. And then of course, OPEC releasing their own, which is a complete juxtaposition as well to that uh, market sense too. So overall, seeing them uh, head a little bit higher, some tightness as well in the U.S. market, uh, two-thirds of a percent higher for WTI crude though, at just above $68. Onto the dollar crosses then as as well uh, we had seen perhaps a recalibration to the end of last week when it comes to inflation expectations and what that pretty much meant uh, for the US dollar but now that's kind of petered off again and we're seeing perhaps uh, a likelihood that inflation could uh, well maintain its stance of being a little bit sticky and more interest rate hikes perhaps still on the way so you are seeing a general strength in the US dollar coming back to the fore Although the yen there is still, still sitting just below that 144 mark uh, is where we're sitting out on that front. Karen? Arabile, thank you. Let's uh, broaden out the conversation and take a look at those FX markets with Jerry Chu, who is head of Asia, FX research at HSBC. Thank you very much for joining us today. Let me kick it off with the dollar index because the direction of dollar seems key for all trades globally. And at this point, we've been falling throughout most of June. We've seen the dollar trade catch another leg higher and expectations that this interest rate story is still on the radar. Where to from here for the dollar? Well, I mean, our view is that the dollar will probably you know, resume its downtrend, I think, when the Fed is done hiking, uh, as well as when the U.S. Uh, CPI actually starts to show you know, a very clear December deceleration. Uh, since neither conditions are really in place, so uh, I think uh, you know, we still actually expect the dollar to be more or less in the range until that, uh, those conditions uh, materialize. And how do we think about uh, what the Chinese are doing at the moment when it comes to the yuan? We've seen a, a low midpoint set lately. It feels as though the Chinese are concerned about the depreciation that they've seen in their own currency, given still the strength in the U.S. dollar and just fading prospects now for some about the uh, outlook for the China economic story from here. I think clearly there is a, a little bit more friction you know, as we have as we break uh, critical levels like 715, 720. However, this, this type of friction is not exactly hardline the sand. Uh, neither do we see policy attempts to reverse the trend because ultimately, you know, the uh, fundamental story is still sort of uh, against the RMB at the moment with, you know, seasonal outflows as well as a more uh, cyclical outflows. At the end of the day, we need um, policy stimulus and growth confidence to resume before dollar RMB can stage a proper turnaround. Yeah. Joey, good morning to you then. Uh, I mean, the, the monetary authorities haven't necessarily taken this hard stance in about eight months or so. So it clearly it has taken some time for them to get to this point. But would you say that this might be the end of them garnering some sort of support for what was a sliding currency? I think, uh, you know, as we... Uh if, if the RMB continues to weaken uh, sharply, especially if the dollar is itself not in a strong position, 
that means the RMB's depreciation is very stark compared to peers, then I think we should expect you know, more uh, friction and more policy type of pushback. Uh, so we could be thinking about that in the coming months. Yeah, what about the weakening trend, perhaps a, a longer out? I mean, do you see this sort of fixing, easing that sort of one-sided uh, uh, depreciation pressure? Uh, I think at the end of the day, unless the U.S.-China yield differential really changes, you know, for the advantage towards the RMB, uh, otherwise, uh, I think a lot of um, the flows are still on the direction of outflows. And so uh, this kind of policy pushback can only buy time until the actual fundamentals uh, turn for the better. Joey, I want to ask you about dollar-yen rates because uh, we've seen a one-way direction uh, really in the last number of months. Uh, you could even stretch it out to across the course of this year. We've seen that one-way trend too back in 2022. Speculation now, it's been called uh, a summer sequel of massive market intervention to support the currency. Do you think that's coming? Do you think we're going to see uh, the authorities in Japan step in and try and shore up the fortunes of the Japanese yen? I mean, when you look at the levels of dollar-yen approaching the levels that we saw last September, October, when you consider how you know, the speculative positions are captured by, say, CFTC IMM data is very large, even larger than those uh, seen last uh, autumn. Uh, when you consider this kind of metrics, it does suggest that uh, some kind of policy pushback against this kind of speculative shorts, against this kind of momentum in dollar-yen seems uh, imminent. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.